Hey, podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual biblical symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8 to 9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton for a live recording of the Bible as Literature podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who have ears to hear. Register online at ephesusschool.org. You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with The Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In today's episode, Father Paul moves from the surety of the premise of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to what he terms the non-functional world of the addressees of the text in verse 2, a world that is threatened by everything that surrounds it. Water, he will explain, gives life and gives death at the same time, a concept expressed in the Qur'an as al-muhi al-mumit, the one who gives life, the one who gives death, with no conjunction and in between. Not only water, but spirit in Hebrew, ruah, has the same function. Both water and spirit are destructive and threatening, and at the same time, both give life. Finally, Father Paul explains, chapter 1 presents a negative scenario that will soon be turned into something positive by the scriptural God. I am delighted to present Father Paul Tarazi on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. In 711, we hear in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So you had water coming from beneath and from above. That's the beginning of the flood in 711. And that word, Tehom, is used again in Genesis 8-2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. Okay, let's concentrate on the deep and we understand that it can be threatening and then it becomes a source of life. Let me say a few words about the waters. They are very important. And this was experienced especially by the human beings very early. I mean, you need water for the vegetation and for yourself. That's why great cities way then developed either alongside the shore or alongside main rivers. We, the North Americans, can see that in our countries here, the U.S. and the Canada and so on. Before the airports, I mean, Denver could not have been Denver except starting with the train, okay, the railway, and then the airports. But before that, the main cities like Philadelphia and Chicago and New York and Erie and so on, you know that. 
you have to be either alongside a lake or a river or the seas. But by the same token, these are very threatening. Okay, that's why you have to have walls or canals. The water gives life but gives death at the same time. And this is why in the Bible the spirit is linked to the waters because it has the same function. And here I must repeat it to the displeasure of so many Orthodox mainly, but also Christians and Jews and so on. I mean, everybody is that the spirit is destructive. Yes, essentially ruach in Hebrew as in Arabic means the mighty wind, not just wind for you to breathe, but the mighty wind, which is destructive. And it was one of the elements that God chose to destroy. So let's begin with this. When you hear mighty wind, it is impossible for you, if you are honest, to think about the Holy Spirit of Acts chapter 2. That's a fallacy that theologians created. <laughs> because before Acts 2 was written, there was the Old Testament, where the mighty wind is really threatening, powerful, imposing. It appears so, especially in Ezekiel, where we hear very early on about the Ruach Sa'ara. I mean, it's a doubling, a mighty, mighty wind. And immediately after that, you have war and destruction and lamentation. It is only in the hand of God himself and only in his hand that this mighty wind can be controlled to become a breeze, a breath. Later, we're going to hear this in Genesis 2. But let's stick with Ezekiel, the father of scripture for the time being. At the end, you have bones, dry bones, and God asked the prophet to speak. So it is from the word that this wind comes, but lo and behold, try it in your backyard. That's my classic example. If you have dry bones, put a mighty ventilator. Well, the bones are going to be scattered for heaven's sakes. No, 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 Father Paul, you don't understand. We are talking here about the Spirit. Obviously, like the RSV, that has three translations for the word Spirit, depending on how it suits the translators. The same word Ruach is translated as wind with a lowercase, then spirit with a lowercase, and then spirit with an uppercase. What a joke. How do you know what it means here and there? Ruach is Ruach. Its function in a certain way depends on God and only on Him. When in His softness, He decides to save you from the aridity, notice, and the bones were dry, very dry bones. And yet, the ventilator did not disperse them. 
it brought them together to make again the sinews and the bones together, the skeleton, and then God put flesh on that. It's an amazing text. But unfortunately, we are used to just jump the gun and say whatever we want to please ourselves. And we end up with having the same Spirit of God working in the negative way against the others always, but in the positive way for us. It is not so. It is not so. So be careful not to rush and start, as I heard many of my colleagues during my lifetime doing that. This is the Spirit that will make the Word of God pregnant and so on. They are reading already John into this text, although the John they are reading is their John. Someday when we get there, I shall show you. It doesn't say what people say that it says. Suddenly the Logos is Jesus Christ. No way. The Logos is the gospel word. So we have to be very careful when we are listening. Okay? Be patient. And please, when you decide to argue for or against, it doesn't matter. You have to make the effort to understand the functionality of the text. So verse 2 begins with a non-functional reality. And that is understandable for the people of those times and even for us, that what is around us, the vegetation and the animals and even the human beings, the food, were there when we were born. You know, the trouble with Plato is that it makes a child assume that it, the child, is of the same value as the parents. Come on now. The parents did not come from you. You came from them. There is a first and a second. We can't play games with that. You know my joke with my students. They are ordained deacon in the second year, and then suddenly they feel they are equal to me, the priest Paul and the professor, just because they put the black robe and they have a beard. What what do you mean by equal? We may be equal in the eyes of God. I don't know about that, but we may be there. But in the classroom, I mean, you don't know Hebrew, you don't know Greek, you don't know Latin, you don't know scripture, and then we are equal in what? It's like when you have a service. The priest is a human being, but during the service, he is the celebrant. He can touch the Bible, you cannot, and so on. So please, friends, please, I beg you. Keep this in mind when you are hearing scripture. So here in verse 2, we have the beginning of a story. Let's go back. Verse 1 is the title of chapter 1 specifically, but beyond that, the title of the entire Bible. Verse 2 begins with our word. By our means the addressee, the writers, but specifically the addressees. And this word, the earth, is presented to us as non-functional and threatened by everything that is around it. The deep, the darkness, and notice that in this specific case, the Ruach Elohim, very interesting, the spirit of God, the wind of God, the mighty wind of God hovering over the faiths of the earth. So a movement is going to be 
done now. And interestingly, the word hover later in the Bible in these two settings, let's go over them, which is important to show you how the text on purpose in chapter one is using a negative that is going to be turned around by God and made positive. In Jeremiah 23, 9, we have concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. So that's the translation of that same verb. And it appears a third time, only these three times in the Bible, where in Deuteronomy 32, we hear in verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. Very powerful text. So you see an eagle, powerful, mighty, and it is hovering in this way over the young. And it is only the eagle who is in control of the situation because the eagle can destroy his young, but he can use his power to spread out his wings, catching them, bearing them on his pinions. The Lord alone did lead him, and there was no foreign god with him. Okay, so here again, you would see that everything is a matter of how the control is used. And let me end with my classic rendering of the story of Ezekiel. And I hope my hearers slowly on make the effort to understand when I try to choose examples, it is not to get away from our main text, but to make them understand. My knowledge of scripture allows me to use the correct examples. My students, I remember, were very impressed with that. The spirit in scripture is like a fan with 17 or 34 different speeds, but whose key for changing the speeds is only in the hand of God. He alone has the smart key of this ventilator, which is the spirit. But we theologians don't like that. You see how theologians speak about God on his behalf and so on. If it is as though it's an item in a lab and they do whatever they want with him. No, he alone, he, remember Psalm 82, he's going to judge the gods. And that's why people misunderstand the text in John, where he said, you are like gods, and they take it positively to speak about the theosis, especially the Orthodox. No, he was speaking to the Pharisees, and he was judging them. And from now on, as we shall see, as in Ezekiel, God and only God will be in control, and we will hear, and God said, and God saw, and God called, and so on and so forth. So we have a series of verses where the action is directly from God. Let's go back to Ezekiel, the action of the mighty wind, which is still the ruah, it's the same word, of destruction comes from God. And the rebuilding, it is through the same ruah, but again under the control of God, where 
we have a play between the mighty wind and the breeze, and it's all over the Bible. Actually, the Greek is very helpful in the sense because pnevma is the word from pnevo, which means to breathe. <laughs> so it's not just the mighty wind, it's also the breathing. But please remember, it's the same word. But unlike the Greek where the pnevo is positive, is the breathing, and then it can become a wind, in the Bible, the Ruach is essentially a mighty wind, destructive, which in the hand of God can become life-giving. And it's parallel, as I said, and as it is in Genesis 1-2, is the water. And for the Orthodox, I would like to remind them, and I'll finish with that, the waters of baptism, where the child or the adult is thrown in, is lurking with the devil. So you are put in the waters to be saved from the waters because they are threatening. And we shall see this, I mean, not perhaps on the podcast, but in the Bible with the exodus and the waters and so on and so forth. It is life and death. That's why in the Bible, only God gives life. And only God gives death. The Quran has captured this in a magnificent way where two connected words of God, al-muhi, al-mumit, it's from the same root as the Hebrew. The one who gives life, the one who gives death. And there is no and between the two. Al-muhi, al-mumit. So ultimately, death as a punishment, obviously, in the Bible, comes from God, and we're going to see it soon in chapter 3. He is in control of the tree of life, and thus he is in control of death. I cannot stress enough. I'm going to stress it anyway in the coming. But I want you to hear as much clearly as possible these two verses and make the effort. Go. Try to read them. Forget about the translation, you know. Take your notes, review them, check with people who know the languages, but please make sure to ask them to explain to you the meaning of words, not to blabber their theology to you. Don't ask anyone to explain to you verse 1 and verse 2. Check with them on the correctness of my understanding, the words, and do that all the time so that the decision be made by you, because you are going to be judged should you misconstrue Scripture. You can't blame it on anyone else. So please, let's do this work together. Thank you for the time being, for the effort. I'm assuming that you have promised me to do from now on. How does Introducing the land here in verse 2 affect how we're supposed to read the land later on in the Pentateuch. The land is the basis. Let me jump a little bit into Arabic because it's very interesting. The foundation in Arabic is a word, ardiyat, from ard. It's a word construed from ard. That reflects how in the Semitic languages, 
the matter is understood. I'm talking about the Semitic languages. It's not that the understanding is not so in other parts of the globe. You know that the earth is considered to be our mother in practically all cultures. What's the mother? It's your basis, your support, what gives you life. But when a mother does not have milk, then it doesn't work. She can't feed you. That's why we have nannies, you know, the ant and so on. So ultimately, you see, reality shows you that Plato, as I will explain soon, is precisely the serpent of Genesis 3. De facto, I'm convinced of that, that the authors meant Plato and Platonic theology. But let's be patient and I'll get you there. <laughs> so. Once you understand that, then when you get to Deuteronomy, you have to be very careful with the so-called land. Because number one, it's a gift. I hope no one is going to argue against me on this matter, that it is presented as being a land that is given to you. Why? Because... Without it, you cannot live. You need the earth. What Deuteronomy underscores is that it is given as a gift to you, which repeats precisely Genesis 2 and 3. And when we we'll get to 2, I shall show you the mistranslation. To work the earth. Abad is not to work the earth. To serve the earth. But we'll get to that. In other words, you have to take care of it in the right way so that it can take care of you. And if not, it can be a curse in the sense that if it does not give you fruit, remember in Deuteronomy, since you refer to Deuteronomy, I would make it so that you would have fruits in their season and so on. It's not a platonic earth. It is a reality. That is what it is. It is absolutely, from my perspective, a preparation for that, to put it otherwise. To get Deuteronomy and to start talking about the Zionists of today, about the earth of Deuteronomy, then you're not listening to the Bible because it is the same earth as the earth of Genesis 2.2. Once more, it's the functionality. Okay, the earth is more general then Adama, it can be actually in chapter 3, because of Adam, it's the Adama, which is a facet of the earth that has been cursed. So it's as threatening, ultimately, as the spirit, which is the wind, and the waters. And it shall be shown in a few chapters early on with Adam and later with the flood. Remember how we Orthodox in our prayers stress very much when you pray, you pray for gentle showers. And I shall show you how the play between Adama and Eretz starts already in chapter 1, not in chapter 2 and 3. But again, we have to hear it and figure out things. And that's the way it is. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.